Today we're discussing LSD heterozygosity and neurodegenerative disease. Hello and welcome to the JIMD podcast. I'm excited today to welcome our first team from Australia for this podcast. We're discussing a recent paper, Is SGSH Heterozygosity a Risk Factor for Early Onset Neurodegenerative Disease? And I'm joined by Dr. Kim Hemsley, Nazma Nazri and Dr. Nick Smith to discuss this paper. Good morning, Naz, Nick and Kim, or should I say good evening? Good evening, James. Evening. Good evening, James. Now, um, your team's work is focused on childhood dementia, but this is also providing insight into more common neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease. I wonder if you could explain what have these groups, these children and these adult patients got in common? That's a really good question, James. Um, Probably the intersecting point is the endosomal lysosomal network. Um, There are around 70 childhood dementia-causing disorders, and many of them are lysosomal storage disorders. They're mainly caused by autosomal recessive inheritance of a mutation in a gene encoding a lysosomal protein or enzyme. This leads to low or no enzyme activity and accumulation of substrate. And that obviously has catastrophic effects on cells and ultimately organs. Now, the parents of those children with that lysosomal storage disorder each carry or are heterozygous for a mutation in a lysosomal enzyme encoding gene. And so that means they've got approximately 50% of the normal amount of enzyme activity. Typically, we've believed that that has been sufficient to prevent disease, but there's now increasing amounts of evidence to suggest that perhaps not that's not the case and that maybe carrying a mutation in a lysosomal enzyme encoding gene may confer increased risk of developing a degenerative condition, including, um, but not limited, to Parkinson's disease. There's also potentially a cumulative risk, so when uh, multiple mutations are present, affecting more than one lysosomal gene. So one of your areas of interest is mucopolysaccharidosis 3 or San Filippo syndrome. With so many different lysosomal storage disorders out there, what draws your attention to this one? Yeah, we've um, been working on San Filippo for some years now. Um, It's one of the more common childhood onset forms of dementia with an incidence of around about 1 in 70,000. And whilst it's rare, it's actually one of around about 70 different conditions that cause childhood dementia. And so we're very motivated by the fact that when you put those all together, one in every 2,800 babies born every year will develop childhood dementia. And across the world, that's 50,000 babies that are affected by these diseases. These are um, are pieces of data that come from a burden study that was undertaken recently by the Australian Childhood Dementia Initiative. Um, Burden study has provided quite astounding and heart-wrenching numbers Um, we're focused on trying to develop treatments for San Filippo to understand the disorder better and develop treatments um, because less than 5% of these childhood onset dementias have approved treatments. So whilst we're very interested in San Filippo, as you say, more broadly, we're interested in understanding and uh, coming up with therapeutic approaches for childhood dementia. We're all used to hearing big numbers at the moment in the context of the the pandemic, but 50,000 babies a year is an incredible number. I I think we forget sometimes that rare diseases become common when you put them all together. Absolutely. And that's what the initiative is all about. It's trying to raise awareness for these individually very, very rare conditions that have a lot of overlap 
And um, so if we can bring some attention to this group of disorders that have been largely neglected, then I think a great number of people, a great number of children around the world will benefit. Now, in the paper itself, you looked at unaffected or wild type mice versus mice who are heterozygous for mutations in the SGHSH gene associated with MPS3A. Could you briefly explain how you compared those two groups and what you found? Definitely. So for this study, we use, as you mentioned, wild-type mice and mice that are heterozygous for the SGSH gene. We have a sample size of about five mice per genotype and four age groups. So the first part of the study, we look at behavior testing, where we use female heterozygotes and wild-type mice up to 21 months of age, and they underwent motor phenotyping. And this include the negative geotaxis test, the open field test, the elevated plasmase, group strength, and also gait analysis. And the results from the behavior testing, um, we found that the heterozygous mice exhibited impaired motor performance in the negative geotaxis test when compared to the wild type. So the heterozygous mice showed an increase in latency to write themselves, and that only the heterozygous mice felt in the grid. However, the performance of these mice in the other motor tests did not vary with genotype. But we cannot rule out a decline in cognitive function in the SGSH heterozygous mice, for example, looking at memory or learning. And this testing undertaken here suggests that carrying a mutation in the gene encoding the degradative enzyme SGSH does not overtly hasten neurological decline with age. The second part of the study was to do some histology and immunohistochemistry staining. So the heterozygous mice brain was evaluated for several neuropathological features of more common neurodegenerative disorders and the pathology such as amyloid beta, um, alpha-synuclein, LIM2, GFAP, and also microglial staining. And the results from this study, we did not find any evidence of pathological feature of more common neurodegenerative disorders, for example, loss of dopamine or reduced GBA activity. We didn't find any alpha nuclear inclusion, perturbation of lipid synthesis, or even Purkinje cell loss. The third thing that we did was to do measurement of um, heparin sulfate, which is to determine if heparin sulfate substrates are accumulating in the brain of heterozygous mice. And the results from this study, we did not find any heparin sulfate buildup and that the levels are normal. We also measured lipids, dopamine, and lysosomal enzyme activities in the brain. As anticipated, heterozygous mice of all ages um, showed approximately 50% um, expression of the wild-type SGSH activity. We also observed no difference in the activity of the GBA in the brainstem in mice of the different genotypes. And overall, there was also no significant difference of dopamine level recorded, nor was there any um, apparent reduction in the level of um, the neurotransmitter, um, this neurotransmitter with age. And the last thing that we did was to look at neuronomorphology, and we use an analysis called Scholl analysis. So this was pretty much done by, firstly, we stain them by using a method called Gogai-Cotts to visualize the neuronal cells. And then we count the number of dendrite intersection that occurs at a fixed distance from the soma in concentric circles. 
And this analysis is able to reveal the number of branches and the branch geometry, as well as the overall branching patterns of neurons. And we also use three different dendrite labeling techniques. And pretty much what that means is that it's, it uses different classification of the dendrites. And the results from this study also shows that Whilst the brain of the SGSH heterozygotes aged up to 21 months did not exhibit any gross features of Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, or the neurogenerative lysosomal storage disorders, we did note that there were discrete structural aberrations in the dendritic tree of cortical pyramidal neurons in 21-month-old animals. But unfortunately, we were unable to test for neuronal function using electrophysiology in this study. You've, you've talked about another condition within the paper, if you've got heterozygosity for uh, one of the uh, NCL uh, genes, it, it leads to frontotemporal lobar dementia in humans, but that's not modelled uh, in mice that are used in that condition. Uh, are you confident that the, uh, the SGSH mice uh, are a good model for this disease? And is there anything else that you wanted to explore? Thanks for the question, James. Um, no, I don't think so. We are using an accurate mice model. So this is an, a naturally occurring MPS3A mice model that has the mean sense uh, mutation, D31N. And with uh, our previous studies, we have shown that the mice model are quite similar to the um, human MPS3A. And to answer your second question, yes, the, so the hydrozygous mice did look a bit clumsier and we did not find any significant changes in the histology studies. But we did find that the motor cortex um, peripheral neurons did exhibit some subtle changes where we detect statistical significant difference in the length of the outermost dendrites with longer processes seen in the heterozygous mice. And this is regardless of the labeling strategy use. Do you mind if I jump in and if you permit me maybe to take a step back uh, and make a comment on the very interesting data that Naz and Kim have uh, gone over in some detail. But I think it's what I would like to comment on to the audience that we're listening is that this research is part of some research that has really demonstrated of the symbiotic benefit of having a clinical and scientific or preclinical research team considering problems in the context of diseases as they affect humans and indeed a clinical aspect of this because a lot of this work has been driven by questions that have arisen out of the clinic. There's been a long-term concentration of work that our group and others have focused on looking at understanding the pathobiology of these homozygous disorders as they affect children, these childhood dementias, and looking at how the mechanisms of disease can inform therapeutic treatments for those diseases. But what was interesting in the clinic for a number of these disorders, and perhaps the, the best exemplar of this is Gaucher disease, one of the more common lysosomal storage disorders, a disorder of sphingolipid catabolism, was that as clinicians across the world, it was noted that heterozygous carriers, so the family members of homozygous patients, were manifesting an increased frequency of late onset uh, neurodegenerative disease in the form of Parkinson's and, and Lewy body disease. And that posed the question as to whether heterozygous state in Gaucher disease, which is secondary to the GBA1 mutation in the case of that disorder, may actually contribute to a form of neurodegenerative pathology in carrier state. And indeed, that then led uh, preclinical researchers to consider that concept and that hypothesis and to explore it further.
And that's where a great interest has emerged from raising that question and from posing that question, because a number of the bench side endeavours looking at heterozygous state have started to support that hypothesis. So to find uh, not only clinical findings of, of disease in heterozygous state, which is perhaps most evident for Gaucher disease, where there is a, a significant clinical magnitude of effect, but also evidence in preclinical models of disease. And that's the work that Kim and Naz have presented from the MPS3 mouse. And it's interesting to my mind that whilst some of the differences could perhaps be considered subtle in terms of the um, magnitude of the, of the effect that's being seen. And as mentioned that many of the course measures we have of looking at neuropathology, uh, there was no significant difference between the wild type animals and the heterozygous state. But if you unpack that a little bit further, there is, that's not an unexpected finding necessarily because the human state for heterozygous carries in San Filippo syndrome, there is no significant or no overt clinical disease that is, is evident in heterozygous carriers. But that doesn't change the fact that at the subcellular level, at the neuronal morphology level, there were very real differences noted, albeit subtle, which raises the question of an impact from heterozygous state in the context of this disease and a mutation in the SGSH gene. And whether indeed there's a gene dosage effect. So do carriers manifest some form of disease? And so it's not to say that a carrier doesn't demonstrate pathology, but that pathology may not be of a significant magnitude to be clinically relevant in and of itself. And as Kim perhaps uh, alluded to and mentioned, uh, it may well be though that carrier status is a predisposing state for the, for the individual uh, who has uh, a single copy a heterozygous copy of the gene mutation, uh, and that that may, in conjunction with other risk factors, whether they be genetic, epigenetic, or environmental, increase the risk of those individuals to develop late-onset disease. And I think that there is increasing evidence of that, this paper included, and in the work that we're exploring, uh, and indeed the work of others around the world looking at other forms of lysosomal disease and, and heterozygous mutations uh, within the lysosomal catabolic pathway that are starting to support that very hypothesis. And in this paper, the results are largely negative, but there are these subtle changes. You've obviously got a cohort of these children in clinic with MPS3A, which means you've got their parents attending clinic and they are presumably carriers for the condition. Have you thought to look at them and see if there are any um, subtle consequences of, of the carrier state in, in humans? Well, I think it's an interesting question. I would say it actually provides an opportunity for this group of, uh, of the population. And it's a very large group, as Kim has, has characterised, because the frequency of heterozygous mutations in uh, the SGSH gene, but in the wider group of lysosomal disease-causing genes or genes that are involved in the lysosomal catabolic pathway is really quite common, as you say. And that, that is a group within the population which likely represents a spectrum of predisposition uh, potentially to later onset uh, neurological conditions. And as we understand more about these conditions, we recognize that in many cases, there is a polygenic burden, a burden from multiple genes uh, that are acting 
either complicitly or through different mechanisms to predispose one to disease across many systems, in our case, obviously, an interest in, in neurological disease. And so a single gene carrier of San Filippo syndrome, for example, there is no good evidence, which is very reassuring, that those individuals in and of themselves have a high uh, risk of developing a late-onset neurodegenerative condition. So that's a very reassuring thing to be able to talk to uh, parents and families about. But, but increasingly, and, and with our knowledge in Gaucher disease, where there is more evidence for a clinical magnitude of effect that translates to clinical disease, one has to ask the question, does the accumulative effect of this change impact the individual with other risk factors? Or indeed, is there a percentage increase in risk for these individuals? And it's not just about quantifying that risk and, and being able to inform patients uh, of that risk, but it's also providing op an opportunity to consider targeting that risk and therefore reducing the risk to these patients. And that may be through uh, genetic uh, approaches, that may be through approaches that are developed for homozygous uh, disease. And so many of the therapies that come out of treating homozygous disease state, one of the questions that that poses for us is do they have a role in translating those to reducing risk in heterozygous patients. But I think that's probably a premature question because the first question really is, are these observations, these preclinical observations, translating to a true clinical risk? And if indeed they are, is that risk amenable to therapeutic approach to reduce the risk on the population? And it may be that there are multiple tractable targets within this system to reduce the overall burden of later onset neurodegenerative disease. And that's a very palatable clinical question for those of us that work in the clinic and deal with patients with these disorders, because it's unlikely we're going to have a tablet A that impacts uh, a single mechanism in many of these disorders. But nevertheless, if this uh, information informs the pathobiology of disease, and identifies tractable targets within the lysosomal endosomal system, then that may provide us with a valuable avenue of approach to reduce the risk in individuals uh, and make it less likely that they're going to develop later onset neurodegenerative disease uh, in the future. I mean, you've answered one of the things I wanted to ask about, which is, you know, is this, uh, which way is the benefit from this work coming? Is this going to be work that looks at almost childhood disease that is going to ultimately help a lot of adults? Or is it the insights around adult disease that are going to help children? I do worry about anything that, that shake it as risk factors for, but without definite knowledge that you'll develop a disease, because especially in the case of something like dementia, where it can be so hard to modify the course of the illness anyway. It's not something you necessarily want to know you're going to develop uh, if there is no treatment. No, well, I think that's a great clinical question. And, and in reality, I think that the field is, uh, Kim, it's fair to say, at a premature stage to be able to make any assertion about that. We know, those of us that deal with Gaucher disease and, and Parkinson's disease, that uh, carrier family members of homozygous Gaucher patients have an increased uh, risk of Parkinson's disease. And, and that's understood and that has, translate, that has transferred now to be uh, a piece of information that is relevant to clinical practice. But within the scope of the other lysosomal genes, I think it's fair to say that we don't yet have solid confirmation that changes in these genes translate to a clinical magnitude of effect 
I think we've got increasing information to suggest that there are biological consequences of these heterozygous gene changes, in some cases more subtle than others. And indeed, uh, that informs the function of these genes in terms of gene dosage and the impact of heterozygosity on an individual and raises some very important clinical questions. But at this stage, it would be premature to suggest that heterozygosity in the majority of these genes, perhaps Gaucher accepting, translates to a definitive clinical outcome. And I think it's probably more likely, and I'd be very interested in, in Kim's opinion on this, but very much more likely that what we're observing, pathobiological mechanisms that may in part contribute to increased risk of these disorders, but that in and of themselves, they're like you know, many other risk factors in our society, um, both genetic and non-genetic risk factors. You know, and we all know that those risk factors for dementia and adult onset dementias, so in, in many cases, diseases of attrition and lifestyle risk factors and so forth, are also significant risk factors for disease. And it may well be that in some part, these five 10 percenters do impact and are a tractable uh, target for therapy to help reduce, uh, reduce negative outcomes for patients. But I think it's probably premature to suggest that that's by any stretch of the imagination, uh, a definitive fact. Kim, would you consider that a fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I think we're at a very premature stage, but I think there is increasing need to evaluate the impact of heterozygosity, individual mutations and combination uh, mutations. Uh, say, for instance, the, the rollout here in Australia of McKinsey's mission, um, a, a preconception screening program uh, and the increasing availability of uh, molecular phenotyping and indeed commercial platforms such as Ancestry, 23andMe, um, I, I think the time is, is right now for us to more thoroughly characterise the impact of both single as well as uh, multiple gene mutations and the uh, likely phenotypic outcome, given that more and more people these, um, in these screening programs are going to be made aware of the fact that they're a carrier. It's going to be important for the counselling that those people receive for there to be some science behind the diagnosis that they're given. Um, and so uh, the, the field is, is, is ripe for a significant input in this area, I think. Uh, but I think other than the, the GBA uh, link with Parkinson's disease, I think it's very fair to say that at, at the moment we cannot ascribe any real risk to being a carrier in a, of, of a single mutation stay in the self-amylase gene, which is both reassuring um, but also requires further effort to investigate. And it's it's certainly sobering to think we talked about 50,000 babies a year being big numbers. But if you look at the carrier frequency for mutations in lysosomal storage disorder genes, that will be so many times greater than that. It's um, uh, not something I want to spend too long worrying about, I suppose. No, one in 40, I believe, is is the number uh, carrier frequency uh, across the, um, the different uh, genes, lysosomal pathway genes. And it must be higher in some populations. I know there was a paper published out of Ireland a, a couple of years ago looking at the frequency of, of certain disorders amongst the Irish traveller population. And they had, I think, a one in 10 carrier frequency for 
uh, MPS1. Um, so th there are going to be groups that will have a significantly greater impact than others, I'd have thought. Absolutely. And, and so the effect of founding mutations is a, is a very big deal, uh, not only for the homozygous disease states where we see an increased frequency of affected children with homozygous disease, but of course, the motivation to understand the, the true impact of heterozygous state uh, is, is redoubled in those populations uh, or particularly for those populations. But, but as, as you and Kim have uh, have uh, characterised the true population frequency of these genes uh, in terms of carrier state uh, is pan-ethnic, it's global, and it involves a very high frequency. And, and so that in and of itself is a motivation to better understand some of the preclinical findings that are emerging, suggesting a pathobiological impact of carrier status and trying to both characterise that uh, from a disease understanding point of view, and so from informing our understanding of the, the pathobiology of these disorders, but also then from a clinical perspective to understand the true relevance of those findings to those of us writing scripts in clinic. And if indeed there is an, there's a cumulative effect or, a, or an individual gene effect of clinical significance to then use that information uh, to better inform approaches to mitigate that risk. The idea of people arriving in clinic saying, well, I look, I'm heterozygous for a series of these changes. What does it mean? It's, uh, it's a daunting prospect, but it's the kind of the future we're heading towards. The, the patient clutching the newspaper clipping will be a distant memory compared to the patient clutching their genetic results and uh, asking for interpretation and advice. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. And I think Kim's point is the daunting one for me as a clinician is that now people are accessing that information. It's readily becoming readily available through commercial means, not just through clinical means, uh, which perhaps gives even more impetus to understanding the significance of those findings for the clinic. And it may be that those individuals can be completely reassured. It may be that those individuals are carrying around pieces of paper, albeit to look at what their ancestry is, that actually may have implications for their future health and uh, their future health management. And I think, as you say, that's the, the very daunting prospect here uh, and certainly one of the motivators for this work, which is very much in its infancy and a germinal stage, but for this work to be pursued uh, and for these emergent associations to be uh, much better understood because uh, they may well have a very real impact on clinical approach. They will certainly be a question that we as clinicians will want to answer for our patients uh, as they come in, as you say, waving their, uh, their genetic makeup uh, on a piece of um, very glossy, well-presented commercial paper. Uh, Kim, I don't know if you wanted to have the, the final word on, on you know, where you're going next. Well, um, Nazmi is undertaking a PhD at the moment, supervised by both Nick and I, and he's exploring this idea uh, more in his study. Um, we, I guess, were heartened in some ways by the findings that are reported in the JIMD paper, but we're also aware that you know, even the, the very subtle structural and phenotypic changes we saw um, may well, in the presence of other gene mutations or other environmental changes, may well actually uh, just be a, a precursor to what might happen in the heterozygous state. And so, yeah, Naz is, is continuing this work. One of his goals is to understand 
um, the uh, the brain proteome of uh, a San Filippo uh, mutation carrier mouse. Uh, we don't have the the data just yet, but um, suffice to say, there there look to be some very interesting changes in those carriers, and so um, there's a lot lot more for us and others to to learn yet. So yeah, watch this space. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing about that, and uh, I hope you'll um, come back and speak to us again. There's something to report. Uh, thank you. I know it's very late over there. Thank you all so much for your time. If you're listening to this and you want to read the paper, if you go to the journal website and you search for SGSH heterozygosity and neurodegenerative disease, you'll be able to find it there. And if you'd like to hear more from us, um, just do a Google search for JMD podcasts and be sure to hit subscribe. Uh, Nick, Kim and Naz, thank you so much for speaking with me. It's been enthralling. Thanks very much, James. Thank you, James. Pleasure. Thank you, James. And thank you, everyone, for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.